Hello, I'm Aruni Bhatnagar. Welcome to Elements of Nature, a monthly podcast series about how natural forces shape and influence us, and if we pay attention, how we can live a more gratifying, healthy, and harmonious life. Each episode is focused on an element of nature: earth, water, wind, fire, and space. We talk to world-renowned scientists, professors, and authors, thought leaders who will discuss the relationship of each element of nature and how it impacts our human health and wellness. Today we are delighted to have with us Dr. Russell Foster who is an expert on sleep and circadian rhythms and he's written several books in this area and so we wanted to have a conversation about what circadian rhythms are and how do they affect our health and well-being. So let's start with the key fundamental questions Dr. Foster, what are circadian rhythms and why are they so important for our health and our well-being? Oh, first of all, I'm delighted to meet you, Aruni, and you're giving me the opportunity to speak about my favourite topic, which is always fun. So circadian rhythms, I think it's so awesome to think that we have an internal biological clock, which is ticking away and essentially fine-tuning every aspect of our physiology and behaviour to the varied and indeed dynamic demands of the 24-hour rotation of the Earth on its axis and the light-dark cycle. Yep. And how do we know that our daily activities are not aligned with these circadian rhythms? What are the signs or telltale signals that our body and mind convey to us, telling us that we are not in rhythm with these cycles of night and day? I think the easiest way are the way circadian rhythms impact upon our sleep. So, ideally, you should wake naturally from sleep. So if you're dependent upon an alarm clock or somebody else to get you out of bed, if you are feeling sluggish and lethargic uh, for half an hour or so uh, after you've woken up, if you crave caffeinated drinks like, like, like coffee, and if you crave a daytime nap, and if people comment, if your friends, work colleagues, family say you're being overly impulsive, more aggressive than usual. These are all signs that your sleep-wake is not aligned and therefore your circadian rhythms are not aligned. That's just one example. I mean, the classic example of a mismatch between the internal day and the external day is jet lag. And we all have experienced, I suspect, that terrible sluggishness, that brain fog, that indigestion, that just failure to do the right thing at the right time. Yeah. I like the quote in your book saying that it takes one day for a body to reach Europe and three days for the soul to reach there. <laughs> so, so, so it does make a difference when you, you travel. It takes a little while for you to recover. So the question I had about the jet lag part is, is it easier to when you fly from east to west or from west to east? And, you know, sometimes when I go to Europe, I think that's more difficult than coming back. Is it true for everyone? Yeah, it is true for most of us. Most of us have a body clock that is slightly longer than 24 hours, which means that if we were under constant conditions of light and dark, let's say we, we went down to a deep, dark cave, then our clock would still tick, but it's no longer being synchronized to the external world by the light-dark cycle. So we get up a little bit later and later and later and later each day. And because most of us have a longer body clock, it's easier traveling west because we're adapting 
to an extended day, where a day that's essentially lengthening rather than a contracting day. So that's part of the reason why it's easier to travel west than to travel east. And so what do you do to, to speed up this adaptation? And one of the things is to, when you travel west, is get out there and, and expose yourself to the right, you know, the light-dark cycle and eat at the local time. And yeah. that can speed up. Traveling east is more complicated because light can do different things to the body clock. So very briefly, dawn light advances the clock, makes you get up earlier. Dusk light delays the clock makes you want to get up later. Now, when you travel east, you can end up arriving in the new time zone, where in the old time zone, it was dusk, so you'd be delaying the clock. And if you see light at that time, you're pushing yourself back um, to where you've come from. Whereas what you want to do is advance the clock, drag it forward in time. So the rule of thumb, for example, when I fly to Australia from the UK, is I'm arriving at a time that would actually push me back to Europe. So I wear dark sunglasses for the morning and then wait until late afternoon when the body clock would be in the advanced stage and I drag my body clock towards um, Australia. So the key thing is traveling west, seek out light, traveling east, avoid morning light, and then seek out environmental light in the afternoon. Yep. And do you take melatonin? Maybe no, that, does that help? not at all. No, in fact, it doesn't really do very much. I've got an article on this coming out uh, in November. So melatonin is often very inappropriately called a sleep hormone. What it is, is a biological marker of the dark. And there are people that don't produce melatonin. So, for, for example, people who are quadriplegic and they have severed the neural connections to the pineal gland where melatonin comes from, their sleep-wake cycles are no worse than somebody who is a paraplegic who's got that connection and is producing lots of melatonin. And indeed, in the elderly, which have reduced levels of melatonin, and that's often said, oh, well, that's why sleep-wake is... Is not as good in the elderly. That is not the explanation, because when you take supplementary melatonin, it has almost no impact upon sleep-wake. So what melatonin is doing in humans is probably two things. It's probably reinforcing, at a subtle level, the impact of light on the biological clock. And also, in some people, if you take melatonin, it can reduce by a few minutes the time it takes to get to sleep. So it can have a slight sleep inductive effect. So the bottom line with melatonin is that it's a mild, um, a very mild sedative in some people. And it can perhaps speed up the rate at which you can lock on, as it were, to a new time zone and augment uh, a light dark signal. So yeah, that's melatonin. No, that, that's very, very interesting to know. There's a lot of myths about melatonin, and it's great that you cleared some of them today. But suppose if we were all well aligned and even our cycles were aligned to the circadian rhythms and we have no problems, we're not traveling, we're at home. Even then, are there certain times of day that we have naturally are more alert? Are oh, yes. there times of day that you would say that some tasks we could do only at a particular time? For example, there's some complicated work I need to do, you know, edit a paper or, you know, or give a lecture <laughs> with that. Or, or maybe I, I want to go and exercise. Are there specific times of day that are more suitable for one type of activity versus another type of activity? Well, of course, this is the basis of the new book that's coming out uh, next year called Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Health, because this is exactly what we need to know. So, decision-making skills rise from the point at where we wake up. They peak for adults in the late morning, early afternoon. 
And so if you've got really important decisions to make and you want to be sort of alert, that is a good time. But it's different between adults and older people compared to teenagers. And some wonderful work from Lynn Hasher and David Goldstein at the University of Toronto showed that whilst adults peak in late morning, early afternoon, teenagers will be later in the afternoon. And this is a set of real dilemma because you're normally taught in classrooms by people who are older than the people who are being taught to. <laughs> so there's this extraordinary paradox. You've got yeah. the teacher comes in, bright and chirpy, ready to deliver this stonking lecture, and they're in great form. The class are half asleep. <laughs> and, you know, you don't get the response or the attention that you'd hoped for. By mid-afternoon, when we're feeling a bit jaded, the kids are bouncing off the walls. So there's a huge dilemma in teaching about when we process and how we process information. So that's one a good example. And while we're still on cognitive performance, it's worth bearing in mind that our ability to process information in the early hours of the morning is as impaired as if we've consumed sufficient alcohol to make us legally drunk. So it's yes. a, an appalling... And so going back to parents who will get up in the early hours of the morning to drive the family to the beach to have a few extra hours, actually will be driving a car at a level impairment that would be equivalent if they got into that car with a few beers or a few whiskeys inside of them. Oh. So, you know, it's a really serious issue. Yes. But what we're finding, of course, is because biology is changing constantly as a result of this internal clock, then drug responses change. So some Rather mm -hmm. interesting work recently has shown that for the flu vaccination, a morning vaccination was more effective at triggering an antibody response than an afternoon inoculation. I think the variance was a two or threefold change. Many antihypertensive drugs taken before you go to bed can actually halve the risk of a heart attack or stroke compared to when you take them first thing in the morning. So, yeah, I mean, anti-cancer drugs, also classic, you know, Bill Horesky did some amazing work in this area, showing that colorectal cancer, breast cancer, when you take the anti-cancer drugs, can have a big effect upon curability and, and long-term remission. So we're beginning to understand how our dynamic biology is also affecting our various therapeutics. My interest is in cardiovascular disease and cardiology, and so I know from there that the, there are certain times of the day where the cardiovascular events are more pronounced than others, yeah. and also there is a circadian mismatch in some people. For example, there's an interesting case study that people, when they moved from Japan or came on a vacation from Japan to Hawaii, that they had their heart attacks at Japan time for the first three days. And after yeah. three days, they when they acclimatized to Hawaii, they had their heart attacks at the Hawaii time. So yeah, there I, is a, a strong circadian element to that. Absolutely. Great illustration of the fact that they're working outside their normal biological range in the new time zone and therefore making themselves you know, more vulnerable to a heart attack or stroke. For stroke, the data are quite extraordinary. There's a 50% greater chance of having a stroke between 6 a.m. and 12 noon mm -hmm. compared to any other time of the day as, as as you will know and yet this doesn't seem to be part of the medical training of many of our, our, our young medics they're largely unaware of the importance of biological time yep so is that because of changes in blood pressure i mean every day yeah. there is a certain circadian rhythm to blood pressure that we know heart rate so the outcomes are just perhaps just a reflection of this natural variation in our body functions yeah there's certainly that endogenous increasing in, in blood pressure. But also what's fascinating is that 
platelet viscosity, blood viscosity, is also high during that window, in that morning window. So again, taking anticoagulants, and there's a lovely study that's been done on aspirin. And I, this puzzled me for ages because taking an aspirin before you go to bed, again, reduces your chances of a stroke. And you think, well, hang on, aspirin only lasts in the body for a couple of hours. How can that possibly work when the danger period is the next morning? And of course, Platelets are actually manufactured in the body at night. So if you take the aspirin before you go to sleep, it's going to interact and prevent platelet viscosity in those new platelets that are being made. And once they're turned off, they remain off. So you have lower blood viscosity the next morning. And so, you know, it's, it's knowing that the platelets are made at night that explains why the aspirin is so effective. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I want to sort of go back to the point I was asking earlier, I think because many would be interested in this uh, question is, is there a right time to exercise? And does that depend upon your chronotype? I mean, some people <laughs> are like yeah. night owls, some are morning larks. So does it depend upon your, your preference when you should exercise? Yeah. Now, this is a really good question. And I am often asked this. So as we touched on, there's a very different metabolism between day and night. And so one school of thought is that if you can exercise first thing in the morning before breakfast, before you've taken in any calories, to do that exercise, you have to mobilize fat reserves. Mm -hmm. So first morning exercise, whereby you're burning up fat, means that you're likely to burn up fat and lose weight. But that's only part of the answer, because as we progress through the day, core body temperature increases and muscular efficiency increases. So peak athletic performance is late afternoon, early evening. That's when all the Olympic records are set. Mm -hmm. So if you want more strength, more power, more sustainability to exercise and burn off calories, then you do it late afternoon, early evening. So my advice on the exercise front goes back to your point about chronotype. If you're a morning type and you're perfectly happy to do first thing morning exercise, then do it. Personally, I couldn't do it because I'm a late type. So I do my exercise late afternoon, early evening, uh, when I actually can give more power and more time to the physical exercise. And I think it illustrates a a really important point that our sleep-wake patterns, our circadian rhythms are immensely diverse. You know, it's a bit like shoe size. One size does not fit all. And part of what we need to do is work out what our optimum time to do things is, what our optimal sleep times are, and try and adapt our behavior to accommodate our biology. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought, you brought up the question of diversity. As you know, that you've pointed out that teenagers are different from adults and they have different times in which they are most awake and alert. But we have all very different ancestries. So suppose there was a group of people that we have um, been around the equator and we are, you know, not used to changes in daylight cycle. Around the equator, it's always 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of night. But if you're from a northern latitude and then you have a different daylight cycle, which varies with seasons in some places more drastically than others. So uh, is there uh, evidence of human diversity in response to the clock in not only in its functioning, but also our relationship to the clock that is dependent upon our ancestry. It could well be. I think the the, perhaps the clearest story is within seasonal affective disorder, uh, SAD. Mm -hmm. 
As the winter nights lengthen, we feel more lethargic, we tend to consume more calories, we feel tired, we may feel more irritable. And indeed, our motivation, you know, really, really drops incredibly profoundly in full-blown sad. That's different, of course, from the winter blues, which is just a general malaise uh, mm. throughout the winter. And it's been shown that people who've moved, for example, from Florida to Canada, uh, that's actually triggered sad. And what seems to be very important is the light, because if you're given supplementary light, then you can reduce some of the problems in SAD. So, for example, in northern Norway, Tromsø, for example, the families that live there um, have a light box, and every morning the entire family goes into the light room to get their supplementary light. Mm -hmm. Now, what's this light doing? Well, one explanation is that it's consolidating the circadian rhythms. And instead of having a drifting pattern, it's aligned. And therefore, that's improving one's sense of well-being, one's mood, and all the rest of it. So there is a link between day length, light, probably clocks, and certainly mood. But one of the extraordinary things is that the people living in Iceland don't have SAD. So there is a, a population which has gone through, of course, a genetic bottleneck. They're all highly related. And it seems that that population may have evolved, developed or whatever, some sort of resistance to, to the development of SAD. Now, the argument is that of, of most Icelandic peoples are highly, highly related. So you had a founder population that went to Iceland. Mm -hmm. those, those people that couldn't cope with a, just, with a long night just buggered off just to North America. They just carried on. Whereas those that could stayed there and they became able to cope with these conditions. So that's, that's sort of one uh, human example. Where we have the best data is in an Arctic animals. And I think this is such a wonderful story by Karl-Arne Stocken from, again, Tromsø. And he looked at the biological clocks of Arctic reindeer during the winter months when there's months of darkness and the summer months when there's months of light. And he found that in the winter months, when there's complete darkness, they actually turn off their biological clocks. They show no 24-hour rhythms that are discernible at all. But that's also the same for the few months in, complete, in the summer months. And the explanation is that in the winter months, you feed when the weather conditions permit. There's no adaptive value of having a clock. You've basically just got to feed whenever you can. But that's also true for the summer months, where you've got the capacity to feed constantly to generate enough calories and therefore enough fat to allow you to survive the winter months. So there are examples in biology and nature where clocks are turned on and off because of extreme conditions. And this environmental tuning and adaptation and modification of our circadian rhythms, I think, is a new and exciting area of research. Right. So does the similar thing happen in humans also? I was reading one study and said, at least in the Dutch, that there is some evidence that their you know, hormonal secretions, thyroxine levels vary with winter and summer. You know, lots of people gain weight in winter and we say, well, this was Christmas and we overate and overindulge. But is there an intrinsic biological reason that some people might gain more weight, maybe a quasi-hibernation-like state in winter? Well, I think that seasonality certainly occurs in humans. The mechanisms remain unclear. And when we have clear data, for example, suicide, it's not when you'd expect. You'd expect it would be, you know, in January, February. Actually, the peak rate in suicide seems to be in March, April. But that's flipped by 180 degrees if you go to the southern hemisphere. 
So there's a good example. Self-harm, child abuse, many of these abnormal behaviours do seem to have a seasonal rhythm. Uh, Danny Rock in Australia has, has done some beautiful work uh, with large um, studies uh, showing that there is seasonality in human behaviour, and that's almost certainly underpinned by uh, hormonal profiles, but we don't have really good data on that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is really critical to us here in the United States. So there is this idea that people in the United States who are an African ancestry have not had variability in circadian rhythms. And so they suffer disproportionately more from this 24-7 lifestyle and artificial light than people from Northern Europe who are more adapt to changes in circadian rhythms. So what do you think of this idea and how do you think we can address this? In my view, and of course we don't have the data, but I'm, I'm just guessing, I think that the fundamental circadian machinery will be the same. What might differ is the amount of light we need to set the clock. So if you've had generations and generations in a very bright light environment, then you might actually require lots of bright light to set your clock. I mean, it's the same with vitamin D synthesis. Mm -hmm. Of course, mm -hmm. one of the great problems with, with African-Americans is with pigmented skin, they can't produce enough vitamin D. And so rickets in New York was quite common in the African-American community. It may well be that there are adaptations which mean that the clock needs more light to set to the light dark cycle. And in the winter months, this might be a problem. So uh, it's probably useful for many of us, but perhaps, and we, but I stress, we don't have the data um, for the African-American community to um, make sure they're getting sufficient light, daytime light. And if you can't get out and expose yourself to natural light, then from a light box to make sure that biological clock is set. It's like the Scandinavians. They use light boxes to set their clocks and perhaps groups in the US and around the world need a similar light box exposure. Yeah. So we talked about teenagers and people with different ethnic backgrounds. What about age? So there's a beautiful poem that Yeats says that when you are old and gray and full of sleep. So yeah. are the old people always full of sleep or is this <laughs> just, just well, a fantasy? <laughs> so there's increasing evidence that the amplitude of the circadian oscillation might be decreased as we age. And so, for example, uh, one of the questions I'm often asked by an aging community is, why do I have to get up every night and pee? What's going on? And so there's a hormone called vasopressin, uh, which stops you peeing at night and allows you to pee during the day. And that day-night difference in vasopressin seems to be squished. It seems to be uh, lowered in the elderly, which is maybe indicative of many sorts of hormones. So the robustness of the circadian system may be uh, reduced and therefore its capacity to drive rhythmic biology, which is why sleep may not be as robust, which is why the other cycles such as um, urine production may also be changing. Again, what can you do about it? Well, Exercise can be very useful, and again, light exposure, which have been shown to increase the robustness of the clock. One of the things that we're working on at the moment are new drugs that can we can change the circadian system. And at least in mice, we can actually increase the amplitude of the circadian oscillation. And this might actually be quite useful for the elderly going forward. But also you find that suppressed amplitude in conditions such as schizophrenia where the sleep-wake cycle, of course, mm -hmm. is massively disrupted. Right. So I think there are drugs on the horizon that actually might make a big difference uh, to some of these problems that we're seeing. 
Right. So people who are well aligned with the circadian rhythms, regardless of the age, circadian rhythms, do they affect our propensity to sleep or the quality of sleep? I know lots of people are wearing those yeah. aura rings and trying to figure out if their sleep quality uh, is good. And so if you are better aligned in your circadian rhythms, do you sleep better or you sleep more at the right time? Okay, there are two factors that time the sleep-wake cycle. One is the circadian system which is time stamping everything, saying now is the good window to be awake, now is the good window to be asleep. But it's coupled with another timer, which is perhaps the most intuitive thing about sleep, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater the the sleep pressure that builds up. And when Mm -hmm. we're asleep, the sleep pressure dissipates. And so the drive for sleep from the clock and the high sleep pressure should be nicely aligned and that will consolidate the sleep-wake cycle. So the circadian system is really important in this whole sleep-wake timing process. When it's disrupted, of course, again, you know, classic example will be jet lag or night shift work, then the sleep-wake pattern uh, falls apart. A good example is in night shift work. So the first point is that night shift workers do not adapt to the demands of working at night and they don't adapt, again, because of light dim light in the factory or in the uh, in the office at night get exposed to bright natural light during the day and the clock always defers to the brighter light signal so most people don't adapt so how do we cope on the night shift well we have to override this endogenous biology saying now you should be asleep and of course we override that by activating the stress axis, which means that sustained activation of the stress axis, of course, predisposes night shift workers to coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, and indeed the suppressed immune system to a greater vulnerability to cancer. So you've tried to struggle through the night shift, but then you get back home and then you need to sleep. Now, the sleep pressure is really high because you've been awake all night, but the biological clock is saying, hang on, It's daytime. You should be awake. So the quality of sleep that you get during the day after the night shift is also impaired. You can't compensate for that loss of sleep at night. And there's a good example where the circadian system and the sleep pressure systems are not appropriately aligned. Right. Yeah. Having said all that, there's there's a lot of variability between individuals. Uh, As we said, one shoe size does not fit all. Uh, And so there are morning people, genuine morning people who can cope better on the morning shift and uh, younger people particularly uh, and also those with the right late chronotype that can deal much better with the night shift and I'm often bemused why companies don't chronotype their workforce and say right you'd be better for the morning shift you'd be better for the evening shift it's your choice but you know frankly I think that will be a better match for you. Yes. Uh, no, shift workers is an extreme example. And yeah. maybe jet lag is also an episodic uh, encounter. What about more generally? Uh, most people I, we hear don't sleep well enough and they're not getting enough sleep. We hear that Americans are getting six and a half hours, seven hours sleep. So if we are maybe chronically sleep deprived on the weekdays and we have a sleep debt, so to speak. Can we make that up by, you know, sleeping extra on the weekends or that debt never gets repaid? It doesn't get repaid unless you're going on a long holiday. It doesn't get repaid for a couple of reasons. First of all, the sleep debt is huge. But the clock is saying it's daytime, you need to wake up. So you you can't sleep as long as you would like to restore the sleep debt. But it's also 
the failure to get the morning light, which is so important for entraining the clock. And so what many teenagers do, of course, and those of us who are chronically tired at the weekend because we've worked crazy hours during the week, is that we oversleep. But we then we miss our morning light signal, which means that we start the, the new week with a drifting biological clock and a misaligned set of circadian rhythms. So the advice is always to try and keep as regular sleep-wake cycle as you possibly can. But it's also very important to be aware that, that, that some people need genuinely up to nine hours of sleep, whilst others can probably get away with six hours. And so you need to tailor your sleep patterns as best you can to your particular needs. Mm-hmm. So that is very critical that maybe there are some individual variations, but fundamentally there is a universal clock that, as you say in your book, that it extends from maybe all the way from nematodes down to, to humans. Even and there bacteria. Are these even bacteria, that's right. Even, even bacteria. bacteria. Yeah. Even bacteria. And, and it makes sense because in order for us to function on this planet which has night and day cycle that as uh, for feeding and resting, we need to take into account the circadian rhythms. And there is a molecular mechanism. You have this BMAL clock, so clock genes, and there is PER gene. And, and so they set this rhythm. But how does fundamentally, particularly in humans, how do, fundamentally do we keep time? Yeah. I mean, how does the body know it's now 16, it needs to go puberty, and now it's old, it needs to have gray hair? Where is that calendar? And who's okay. keeping time? Well, okay. So so where we have good evidence, of course, is on what makes the circadian clock tick. And of course, the Nobel Prize in 2017 was given by three Americans who I got to know extremely well when I was a professor at the University of Virginia for eight years. So Ross Bash Hall and Young, mm-hmm. an immense achievement. And I was actually there at the ceremony clapping to see this wow. phenomenal achievement. And they worked it out in fruit flies. And it's turned out that the fundamental mechanisms in a fly are conserved, broadly speaking, within humans and, and, and the rest of animal life. So we We have a beautiful description of a 24-hour oscillation. And I think it's one of the best, it's the best example we have of how genes and their protein products can interact to generate a complex behavior. In other domains of timing, it becomes more complicated. So, for example, if we think about ovulation and the menstrual cycle in women, the sensitivity of the ovary and the brain to cycling hormones changes on a 24-hour basis. The, the ovulation itself is being timed by a biological clock. So we know the circadian system is important in regulating a average 28-day cycle, but there you've got rising hormonal levels of estrogen, progesterone, and so there's an interaction between a circadian system and an oscillation in hormones that ultimately gives you this rhythmic cycle. So you can generate rhythms in a variety of ways. Other rhythms can be the product of of a network of interactions Mm -hmm. of cell cells in a circuit producing an oscillation. Or indeed, the electrical activity of a cell is essentially this wonderful transition of ions passing through a membrane that give us our action potentials. For our annual rhythms, which we discussed, we have, we know in mammals that going back to melatonin, melatonin is really important. So if you happen to be a large mammal, like um, a deer or what else, a moose or something like that, then as the night length increases during the winter months, that actually triggers 
these big mammals to breed, to crank up their reproductive system, breed, so that the young, uh, and, and sheep for example, are in gestation over the winter months, so that they're born in the spring where there's masses of primary productivity, lots of grass for the mothers to turn into milk and to wean their offspring. But what's so extraordinary, it's the melatonin, expanding and contracting melatonin signal that is providing that timing information. Now, is that going on in humans? Well, we know that in agricultural workers, there's an expanding and contracting melatonin signal. Is that used? Is that translated by our biology? We don't know. Up until fairly recently, and if you look at birth records, there were clear rhythms when most babies were born. They've, with, with industrialization and electric light, that seems to have disappeared. So were we like sheep and reindeer? Possibly, but we don't know for sure. Uh, we have the timing equipment, but it's not clear if we actually use it. So that's one way you can change your annual biology, but there's even more. Again, work on sheep has shown that they have an annual clock, that under constant conditions, this yearly clock will tick away. And it is also influencing their reproductive biology. Do we have an annual clock? We don't know. Yes. Um, I assume that we must have some, some sort of annual timer. But what it's actually doing isn't particularly clear. I would say that other people have argued that because we evolved in the equatorial regions uh, where seasonality wasn't that pronounced, we probably never evolved a seasonal biology in the same way that animals in the northern and southern latitudes did. So uh, we may show some variation, but it's not driven by an endogenous biology. And there's sort of an example of that. If you look at the birth records of the native peoples of Canada, there was a major peak in births. About 80% of births were in around about April. And so it's thought, aha, this would make sense because uh, most of the young are born as spring is advancing and you have as long time as you can to, to feed those young people uh, before the next winter kicks in. So they're probably using a mechanism like sheep. And then somebody actually asked the native peoples of Canada, why they thought the peak of births was occurring in sort of March, April. And they said, well, if you count back nine months, it's the middle of the summer and it's the only time we get any privacy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but that's no. true for everybody. I mean, even, even in Europeans, I've seen in India, spring is always the time of love, you know, and, and renewal. And so there is uh, you know, spring in the air. So it is sort of ingrained into a cultural yeah. you know, and, worldview. And I think that's the dilemma with humans, because we have such an incredibly strong cultural drive. It's interacting at some level with our ancient biology. But is it overriding it? Is it augmenting it? How are the two interacting? And I think that's a, a really exciting future area for research. Yeah, there's much to learn, and, and I think the, the research will go on. But one of my favorite passages, I must say, in your book was about the discovery of the clock genes. It tells us not only how the human element of discovery works, but what is the nature of evidence and what it yeah. means to do science and how does that relate to people's and their lives. And yes. I live and work here in Kentucky, so it's particularly fascinating for me to read that the circadian rhythms were first discovered in the Mammoth Caves, which is about like 90 miles from here, that yeah. the professor... And 
and his assistant, they spent, I don't know, maybe yeah. a week in the darkness of the Mammoth Cave, but they still maintained their clocks, right? Absolutely. Classic experiments. Actually, it's almost like a pilgrimage. I want to, I want to go to those Mammoth Caves. And they were exceptional people because they not only put themselves for a couple of weeks or more in constant darkness, but they had to fend off the cockroaches and the rats that had invaded those caves. So the bunk bed was actually, the legs were in buckets full of disinfectant. So the cockroaches wouldn't crawl up or indeed the rats crawl up and disturb them when they were trying to sleep. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if any of us have the oomph to do, do those types of experiments now. So Maybe when we're younger. I think this is, this is the project for a PhD student. <laughs> so, but given all you've done and it's incredible amount of work, including, you know, your popular books and, and all these lectures that you've given, it is, there is difficulty in getting this idea true to most medical professionals that circadian biology is critical to our health and well-being and that there are ways of you know, I don't know whether you like the term chronobiology or chronotoxicology, and some people yeah. object to all of that, all that terminology, because they think that it's not a separate field of science. It should be embedded in every aspect of medicine, the way we live our lives and the way we think about our lives. Or what do you think is necessary for us to be able to have this idea permeate deeper into not only specialized professions like medicine, but the way people think about themselves and their lives? I think this is an incredibly important point. And I think the problem in the medical profession has been that the demands of the job are so ferocious and the training so intensive that it's the Red Queen problem. You're running as fast as you possibly can to stay where you are. And if I say to my medical colleagues, oh, and incidentally, you need to take time of day into account. And oh, incidentally, it's going to change between individuals. This is yet more stuff that is so overwhelming to them at the moment when, when it's so difficult to get an appointment when you need to get a drug at any time, let alone, you know, at a specific time, that I think that the, it's just the psychology of yet more stuff to do is kicking in a filter for many individuals. And I am deeply sympathetic. What I have chosen to do is just bang on about it at every possible uh, occasion. And so, as I say, the new book is really aimed at that sector, which is saying, hang on, what you do when really matters, and we should be taking this into account. And as a general practitioner, explain why it makes sense to take your aspirins before you go to bed, mm. and your antihypertensives, and in radiotherapy or chemotherapy, why it can make a, a huge difference. And I know it's difficult, and I'm deeply sympathetic, but eventually that's where we've got to go. I moved to Oxford 15 years ago from Imperial College in London, and I taught a, an intensive module to junior doctors. And, and we spent three weeks and they were assessing their own circadian rhythms. They were going through the literature and we had a very interesting debrief. And so I asked the question that you've just asked me. I said, okay, so what can we do to embed this within practicing medicine across the board? And one lad said, oh, it's simple. It's really simple. You introduce it into the private sector. Mm. You, show, you show its efficacy and then you'll have the large data sets to convince the state sector that it's got to be adopted because you're discriminating as a result. I think we've got to be very pragmatic. So I'm, I'm trying to do it by making this information available to the broader population. They can then ask their general practitioner, actually, what time should I take this drug? And, they're just, and the practitioner will say, oh, just with a meal. And they'll say, but why? I think they need 
to you know essentially push the practitioners to give a sensible response to why you take a drug at a particular time. Now, if you have a response from a, from a practitioner who is, oh, well, the half-life of this drug is so long, it doesn't broadly matter. And that's a, that's a good explanation. But other drugs are not like that. And I think we've got to change the mindset. So you think about getting the right materials in the body in the right amount at the right time of day. And that's what we should be thinking and not ignoring it, pretending it doesn't exist. There's a great point. I mean, I come from an old tradition and in India, there are seasons that are very, very important that you could have some foods at certain times of the season, some foods at the other times. In fact, all of our music is also circadian rhythms. You can't play a morning raga in the evening or the afternoon you know, song in the night. It, 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 does, it doesn't work, right? So there is this intrinsic understanding and respect for circadian changes and seasonal changes and that we are part of this cycle. The bigger ideas are part of the cycle and then and that fighting that cycle is not going to be a big advantage and that going with the flow is what's what would be conducive to our flourishing. It's very interesting because I think part of the problem of the immense success of Western civilization, industrially and in many other respects, has been to breed this enormous arrogance that we can do whatever we want, whenever we like, and we can't. And that's been one of the major downsides, I think, of modern civilization, because we think we can override, you know, three billion years of biology. And it's the baggage we carry with us, whether we like it or not. And not embracing it is doing us and the rest of society great harm. Great. We could talk about this for hours, about this stuff, <laughs> but I just wanted to sort of get your opinion. Is there something else that we need to talk about that we've not discussed that you think is particularly important for us to discuss? One of the things I think uh, you mentioned, which is, is trying to change mindsets. So we talked about it within the context of you know, attitudes towards circadian biology. We talked about within the context of trying to understand the molecular basis of the clock. The idea that there was a subcellular molecular clock was really quite revolutionary. Mm -hmm. In When I went to the University of Virginia in 1988, and I was there until 95, the early idea was the clock actually is the product of cell-cell interaction. Mm -hmm. It's not a subcellular mechanism. Mm -hmm. And by more and more rigorous experiments, this was shown completely. In my own domain, which was how light is interacting with the molecular clock, we were trying to understand how the eye detects that light. And to cut a long story short, we proposed, because we had mice that didn't have visual cells, they were visually blind. They had their eyes, but they were visually blind. And yet their circadian response to light was perfectly normal. And we proposed in the early 90s that there was another light sensor within the eye. And I remember at uh, one conference, I said, so these data are consistent with another receptor uh, in the eye. And somebody at the back of the room stood up and shouted, bullshit. Um, and, you know, a bit surprising. Um, and the argument there was, look, we've been studying the eye for 150 years. Are you seriously telling us we've missed an entire class of photoreceptor? And of course, I was a young professor in those days. So I had the confidence to say, yes, and this is the reason for it. it took me a decade to prove it. But I think what's, what we've been lucky about within the circadian system is that received wisdom has been constantly challenged and overturned. And I think it's because of the diversity of the researchers that have come into this area of science. We've had plant biologists. We've had people working on homing pigeons. We've had people working on flies. And this comparative approach 
and an openness to understand the fundamental biology has been, I think, quite liberating. And so I think it's been, in that sense, one of the really successful branches of, of science because of its diversity. Right. There is so much more remains to be done. But some of the areas that I find most fascinating, what we've been working on is one is how does circadian misalignment affect response to environmental exposures? So we study the effects of yeah. air pollution and we think that people who are misaligned in the circadian rhythms may be more susceptible to the effects of air pollution. The most fascinating work, of course, is now how circadian rhythms affect feeding behavior and weight gain. So we yes. know that restricted feeding in a certain times of day can prevent you from gaining weight. We know that that happens in humans. We see that in mice. The question is, how does that happen? Yes. Right. Yes. So even though we're taking the same amount of calories, what can we do that we don't gain extra weight from the same calories we ingest? Yeah, I think that is going to be a key area of research as, as we go forward. Yeah, no, it's, it's very exciting. And it's, again, some of the stuff that we're doing in Oxford very much relates to that. My colleague David Ray is doing some beautiful work in that side. But also, in parallel with metabolism, I think you've also alluded to immune function. Yes. And of course, asthma is a classic sort of circadian condition. But why is it? What's exactly happening? And there's some evidence um, I was reading recently, which has suggested that the circadian change in some of the immune cells in the lung has been enhanced. So you become hypersensitive. So there's an example where the immune system has been turned on in unexpected ways, which is predisposed to asthma attacks at night. But now, of course, once this fundamental biology and the field has been established, it's bringing in such a broad community from the medical profession through every branch of biology. And so it's very exciting. Yes. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for you know writing a book that's books that are so accessible to people and so readable that it gets the word out. We do all this work in the lab and it's very seldom that we get to distill our message in a way that's sort of accessible to people and they understand what we're talking about and relates to their actual lives rather than some esoteric work in the lab. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for spreading this word around. And I think we're going to have some exciting times in the future, given that some, I believe there's some major discoveries that we can look forward to. We're finding clock genes in monocytes and how inflammation response is, is affected, yeah. how response to vaccination and immunity is affected by circadian rhythms. So we look forward to many years of exciting work and discovery. Yes, and hopefully attracting a whole new generation that could contribute to this, this really exciting field. Yes, absolutely. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for talking with us. I think we have learned a lot just be spending this hour with you. And we look forward to your book. And maybe we find some time again to chat. That would be wonderful. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for joining the conversation. Subscribe to Elements of Nature wherever you listen to your podcasts and please let us know what you think by rating, reviewing and sharing. Your feedback will help us design a series that will be both meaningful and informative.